These things do happen. So if we, if George is murdered by his own microphone halfway through the podcast, um, rest in peace. Yeah, carry uh, on in in memory of me. It's what I would have wanted. Yes, we, <laughs> we will. Do, we will do that. I would have wanted already... you to finish the interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, welcome to We Talk About Dead People, everybody. I'm your host Aaron C. I'm here with, as always with my my illuminated co-host George. Say hi, George. Good evening. And we have arrived for a rare evening recording of the show. We're here for another interview because, you know what, they seem to be taken off, and that makes us very happy. But we have a very special guest tonight, uh, Mr. Wayne McCroy of Internet Fame, a man who I discovered through several different podcasts and really enjoyed listening to because he's articulate and he's funny and he reminds me of my uncle. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Wayne. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. Always a pleasure to get on new shows and discuss these various topics. Well, they are these are very serious or important topics, but we like to keep things light and fun. Maybe there's some things we shouldn't be laughing about, but in this crazy clown world, it's it's uh, it's once you get to once you take the clown pill, it's hard to go back. You know what I mean, Wayne? Oh, absolutely. Uh, once you actually see the nonsense going on around you, uh, you can't shut that out of your mind any longer. Mm-hmm. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And we are living in troubled times for certain, interesting times to be alive for certain. And we've been told about this, you know, in various places, including the Bible had warned us this was coming, this time of troubles. So here we are, and we're viewing this firsthand. We're viewing for history firsthand here as we see many of these things unrolling before our eyes. And I never thought we'd be in a position today that we're in uh, looking at the world around us and all of the various things that have happened. But uh, it is what it is. And we do our best to just trudge along. And if we can't laugh at it a little bit, well, then it makes it a very dull world as well, doesn't it? It makes it uh, a lot more painful to have to experience. Yeah, well, it makes it a little bit more bearable to be able to have a good time. I mean. I haven't been bored in like three years. <laughs> no, there's so much to talk about all the time and so many things going on. It's hard to ignore. And that's kind of uh, where I come into the picture here with a lot of different things. A lot of people have only recently discovered me. I've been doing this for about five years now. And, you know, largely people hadn't heard of many of the things that I talk about and even just talking about pe- to think these things like transhumanism and stuff in your regular circles people don't have a clue what you're talking about <laughs> so it's good to delve into the history of it so people can kind of get a background for what this is what this topic's about what we can see for coming here in the future and you know the foundations that it all came from so that's what we're here to lay out tonight from what i understand right is that what that's, we had in mind that's pretty much accurate and i can give you a, a little bit of background on like my experience with discovering this whole transhumanism thing i was i read uh and to my listeners this is again a broken record i read the book that hideous strength by c.s lewis and i felt like it was his most important book because it was just so on point with how this crap was just going to go down right and I'm sure, you know, you've read it. I feel like I've heard you mention it before. Um, but there was just something about that book that was so prescient. And uh, I listened to it at least a dozen times on audio over the years. And, you know, it's 
And then when you start reading the science fiction authors and the circles they walked in, you know, the H.G. Wells's of the world, you start to realize that this kind of was always the goal. And like you said, when you when you talk to people around you, they have no idea what you're talking about. But uh, it's so right in your face, isn't it? Absolutely. All of our entertainment choices today pretty much pre-echo all of these things. Uh, that's that's something that's a moniker that we often use. We say uh, truth in the movies lies in the news. That's what's going on in the world <laughs> around us. Uh, so if you if you watch the entertainment, you'll you'll see exactly what they have in mind. They put that out there for you to understand what it is that they have coming here. And now there's a lot of people, a lot of planning has gone into this thing and its roots reach way back, way, way back into history, a lot further than people might think. So, you know, with that being the case, transhumanism is a big subject. This is the overarching conspiracy, for lack of better terms, that underlies everything here. And this is all not conspiracy theory or conjecture. All of these things are outlined in various white papers and books written by people in the past. You can follow the trail of the history of this philosophy all the way back as far as you could go in time. And we could find it under different names and guises all the way back, even as far back as Plato in the Republic. He mentioned the aspects of this. And we'll get to the connections here as we go, because it ties back to eugenics. And most people don't have a clue that transhumanism and eugenics are connected in some way. But absolutely, they are. And this is where the roots of all this stuff comes from. And uh, many people don't even know what transhumanism is. Maybe we should just start by defining transhumanism so that people will understand what it is we're talking about here and why this is such an important topic in today's world. So we if should I could, probably... Uh, could I sort of Go ahead, hop George. in here for a second? So I'm I'm a little bit like an absentee spouse on the podcast right now because I've got a lot going on with work and I'm planning my wedding. And so I only found out about two hours ago we were talking about transhumanism. Uh, I texted Aaron. It's like, so what are we talking about tonight? Um, so I think, yeah, it's definitely good to start because I do know what it is, but I would like to know more. But I was wondering if maybe since the listeners obviously know me and Aaron pretty well, if you could sort of work into your uh, your explanation how this came to your attention and became sort of a, a focus of your own interest and how you got into the podcasting with it and stuff. Oh, well, that's that's an interesting story that could take a while in and of itself. Uh, well, this basically it all started my my venture down the uh, transhumanism rabbit hole started many, many years ago. And uh, I'm just a regular dude. I was holding down a regular full-time job, a job in management, a lot of responsibilities and stuff like that, going about my daily routine. And certain things happened in the course of my life that sent me looking down conspiratorial type trails here in the way things operate. And some of the things I found were pretty shocking. So long story short, what really was the catalyst that got me moving on this was an event that happened to my then six-month-old son. He had a severe reaction to a vaccine, and that sent me searching down the medical information field. And lo and behold, later on, he discovered, well, we discovered that he had developed autism. And I know many people will say, there's no correlation, no connection between vaccines and autism. I'll tell you, I can tell you for certain just by my own personal experience. I've seen it numerous times. I now have three children on the autism spectrum, and uh, I could relate it back to 
the vaccination all three times here with these children with the onset of their symptoms. So there's something there that causes the onset. So this is what really truly got me looking. And this is where when you get into the biomedical field, looking at this stuff, you start to find all kinds of connections that you wouldn't expect to be there. And this kind of led from one situation to the other of me looking at all these different trails in conspiratorial type topics and looking back, I'm a bit of a, a science type guy. I have a, a, a science background and a, a history background of sorts. Um, primarily food science is my background I come from. And I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for many years. Ooh. So with that being the case, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of things. And, uh, you know, there were certain topics and stuff that I, I understood some things about. So I went looking and digging further down the trails and the things that I found were actually pretty concerning for the most part, connecting a lot of these different things together. So primarily what had happened, I'd always been interested in various topics since I was young, like uh, many of the paranormal type topics, things like UFOs, that was my big thing. And that's where I really had truly started researching at first. That was until this happened to my son at the time. And then I started looking down other avenues of thought and finding all these different connections between these various conspiracy type topics, these conspiratorial topics. And it's astounding uh, where it all leads to. And to make a long story short, if you want to trace the roots of transhumanism and all these things back to their source, it always derives itself from what's called the mystery schools of antiquity. If you go back and follow this trail back, now, if you're not familiar with what those are, these are the precursor groups of what we would call our secret society groups today. Things like the Freemasons, most people are familiar with, Rosicrucians, the OTO, uh, many of these ones are probably the ones that are probably what most well known. So these teachings and stuff that they have and these trails they have tie all the way back to that. They have occult origins in the past. So by and large, I found all of these topics always have occult underpinnings to them. And I like to tell people I accidentally became an expert in occult philosophy because of my <laughs> researches into this stuff, uh, because that's essentially what happened. And it's 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 startling the things that you find, the admissions in some of these secret society books and stuff as far as that stuff goes. Uh, but as far as its ties to transhumanism, there's always been this this trail through history you could follow speaking on these ideas. And it relates back to eugenics, if you want to get back to the core of what transhumanism is. Well, so we, uh, we talked about when we uh, covered a couple of uh, figures that if you uh, made a list of, say, 50 important scientific figures from, say, 1200 to now, and you made a list of 50 influential figures on the occult from 1200 to now, you'd have a very large amount of overlap. Mm -hmm. Like most of our sort of famous you know, groundbreaking scientists of the pre-modern and early modern period were extremely into the occult and various mystery religions. And you know what? They still are. <laughs> that's the big secret here. And that's primarily the avenue that my my work has, has taken into here. These connections are there. In fact, uh, the name of my podcast and my channel and the very first book I wrote is called The Alchemical Tech Revolution, because you could uh, trace all of these 
technologies, these modern sciences and technologies we have back to the ancient natural sciences or what were known as the alchemical sciences, they go hand in hand. It's like physics and metaphysics are the same thing. It's just the reverse side of the coin, you see. And this is the same kind of thing that goes on throughout all of this. So there's always these underpinnings, these occult underpinnings and underties to all the things going on in the world today. It's just the public face on it now is slightly different. And the technologies we have have made it so that it's more easily implementable by those in control of these things here. So that's essentially the tact of where my work has come from and what uh, what it's all about. I've traced back these occult fraternities and these occult teachings back as far in time as I could go with them. And I've traced them forward. And there's all these connections over and crossover with our modern technology and the occultists, their agendas are all interwoven with the technocratic agenda, which is a very real thing going on right now. And people are largely unaware of that. You could trace the origins of this back all the way as far as you could go. So there's a lot of important crossover that goes on with that. But primarily with transhumanism, this goes back to the eugenics ideas, like I said. And we could look as far back in time. We could go all the way back to Plato and, you know, the... The Greek culture and stuff like that. And they had some foundational ideas that are found in what we would call our modern eugenics movement, which started with Sir Francis Galton back in the mid-1800s. Now, Sir Francis Galton, for those who don't know, is actually Charles Darwin's cousin, and he was a major influence on Charles Darwin in the writing of his book, but I think we're getting a little, uh, I'm, I think I'm putting the cart before the horse here a little bit. First, we should probably just, you know, define what transhumanism is, because I, I'm, I'm talking about it in these connections to the past. But I haven't really laid out the foundation of what transhumanism is yet for the people. So maybe we should start there. I, I apologize. I no, often no. get sidetrailed. Uh, we're the same way, man. This is how it goes. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, George knows I, I get off on crazy rants all the time. Not saying yours was crazy because I really want to get into the nuts and bolts, the dates, the names, that sort of thing that you know. Um, but let's talk about what transhuman it, transhumanism is as like a, like a belief system. What is the goal of the transhuman okay. project? Well, let's take this from... Uh... This is called Humanity 2.0 or H+. This is their website. It's a pro-transhumanist website that pushed their agendas. Here's their definition of transhumanism. Transhumanism is a philosophical and intellectual movement which advocates the enhancement of the human condition by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies that can greatly enhance longevity and cognition. They also sometimes like to use the word robust when they describe these technologies. They describe <laughs> them as that. robust technologies. Remember the word robust. This comes up all the time in all these technical journals and everything these people like to write in. Uh, so when, when you hear the word robust, no, they're talking about these are significant technologies. OK, these are not just, uh, you know, minor enhancement technologies. This is transformational stuff that they want to use here. So that's their official definition as to what this is. What this looks like is this looks like merging man with machine. That's essentially what they they see the goal as transhumanism as being. Now, transhumanism as a state is this transition phase between what we would call modern man or the current man and the next phase in humanity, the next stage in human evolution, as they claim, which they call the post-human and transhumanism is the transitional phase between. So this is the point where we're about to hit uh, that 
that era in history here is where we're going through this phase, this transformational phase of what the human being is. It's supposed to redefine the boundaries of what the human being is. And a lot of this has to do with our technologies. And the the transhumanists, they view this as what they call self-guided evolution. They, they see it as a way for man to take the reins of his own evolution and guide and steer his own evolution through the use of his technologies. So that's what they're principle is what their foundation is and this is why you have guys like elon musk out there saying oh artificial intelligence oh it's it's super dangerous and we can't trust it so uh we we have to do something with it our best chance of surviving is to merge with it and there you go so that's the whole concept in a nutshell they want to take advances in artificial intelligence blend it with human intelligence blend the human body with the technology so that there's uh, very little disconnect between man and machine. It's about parity with the machine. And that's why we have things like brain computer interfaces that are getting all kinds of DARPA funding and stuff like that today, and including uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink, which is just the public face for this technology. And I assure you, there's other developments going on in secret you're not hearing about with this by other companies, one of which is called Kernel, K E R N E L. Uh, and they're all funded by the Department of Defense and DARPA and developing many of these technologies. And it's probably a lot further on than people think. But brain-computer interface is just one aspect of this transhumanist notion. They want people to be able to connect their brain to the computing cloud. That's essentially what the next step is. And they talk about actually being able to digitally upload your consciousness into a machine so that you could exist in a a uh, multi-bodied state or in any state of being that you want. You could exist in an artificial avatar, a robot, or exist in another biological type of an avatar, another body, potentially. Or you can upload your consciousness to the cloud and live in a digital world, a virtual digital world, uh, like Metaverse. These kind of ideas are coming about. And I know Metaverse is a laughing stock right now. It's kind of a joke. <laughs> one day, one day they'll have legs. <laughs> <laughs> but well, see, this is the thing. They they made just like all this other stuff, they they always make some company, organization, or central figure, the figurehead that they put the banner on. And Facebook got that designation. So they're going to be the face of Meta, the metaverse. And the metaverse is something much larger than just this operation Facebook has going. Uh it's the next structure for what they call web three technologies this is the next phase of the internet and we have infinitely more connectivity with that and they, they need a whole lot more bandwidth and operational aspects to it to make it run smoothly uh, that's why they through the whole advent of this alleged pandemic that we just went through why they were setting up 5g towers in the middle of all of it this is necessary infrastructure for this metaverse idea for this web three progression and they're already talking about 10g so uh <laughs> i'm not kidding either this is really stuff that's going on and they're laying out the groundwork for this because they want connectivity at the speed of thought when, that's what they need I, I mean you're you're killing it right now but i i have to i have to ask man i have to play a little devil's advocate because you know i didn't start out as like i've got a problem with transhumanism either because like I was playing video games and watching movies like Blade Runner and stuff. And I was like, wow, someday I could get titanium bones and be able to punch through walls. And like, I could get a, you know, my eyes could see, you know, as far as I wanted to, I could zoom in on things and take pictures with my mind. Uh, that all sounded cool to me growing up. So 
you know, I could go on why I started to think that this might be a problem, but I'd actually rather have you explain why this might be a problem. Well, here's the thing in a nutshell. All right. All of these enhancements and advancements that they claim they could bring to fruition through these transhumanist technologies, it all sounds good on paper. It sounds great. And they sell it to the public in this way, that this is going to be transformational. It'll be great. You could upload your consciousness in a into a machine, and then you could live forever. You could live in any type of a virtual world you want. You could have any type of avatar you want. Uh, all of these different ideas. You could have the, the, you know, the, the superpower to punch through the walls and see really long distances. All of these advances, they all sound great. But what they don't tell you is they're not intended for you. And that's where in the problem lies. You see, there's a very small group at the top of the power structure in this world that control many of these innovations. And they do not intend for these to get into the general public for use. These are for the one percenters, so to say, these technologies. But they have no qualms with testing these new technologies on the masses. And that's where in we are right now. So once they perfect many of these technologies, the plan has always been, and this has been documented in many different places, and everybody will say you sound like a paranoid conspiracy guy or something with this, but I assure you there's actual white papers and think tank group papers that talk about a depopulation plan, depopulating in many ways the world. So this is something that uh, is kind of hidden underneath the veil of this transhumanist thing. They want you to believe that, yes, we have all these fantastic new technologies that are coming about, these biotechnologies that we can use to do all of these marvelous things. The problem is they're not telling you. They have no intention of you having access to these. It's only going to be those within the, the small circle who really run things in this world that will have access to this very small group of uh, the, the technocratic elites who run this place. And, you know, they, they call themselves the Olympians. Uh, they hearken back to the gods of ancient Greece. They, uh, this goes on within the various secret society groups and stuff too. They, they all tie together with this small group that's in power in this place. The ones that run things behind the scenes the ones you don't see out there in the public because this is how they maintain a grip of control and have top-down control on many of these innovations. They control the funding that goes into the various sciences. They control where, where all this, the direction that it goes through the funding mechanism. And a lot of this has to do with all the central banks. And the central banks are one of the conduits through which they, they institute these controls. But, uh, the whole point here is they have no intention of allowing the masses to use these technologies because in their view, this would cause a catastrophic overpopulation problem. If you have what almost, what's the population now? 7.7 .7 billion people by the time, you know, they, they institute these in, they, they, they predict by the year 2045, that the singularity, what they call the singularity, should be coming about. So if they have, say, close to 9 billion people who will now have the capacity to use these technologies and potentially live forever, well, this creates a major problem for them because they view the world as being 
full of only finite resources. And this has always been their shtick with all of this. It's about the scarcity agenda that goes with it, too. They think the world's overpopulated. They put out uh, policy white papers about this ad nauseum since the 1960s and before talking about the population bomb, the overpopulation of the world that they have to somehow coerce people into having less children and doing all these many things. And this goes hand in hand with the transhumanist notion, goes hand in hand with the eugenics notion of things. And that's the whole big key that underlies all of this. They don't want the masses to catch on or too early that they're not the ones that are going to be the beneficiaries of these technologies. Well, I have to say, I have to say, I was most imp- I was most impressed with the stuff you did with Jason on Secrets of Saturn, where you were you guys were just reading their papers. It's right yep, there. Yep. It's like it's right there, and it's it's dressed up in all this like flowery scientific language, but they're basically at the bottom line, like we're gonna kill a lot of people. Okay, and it's like, what, yeah, what the hell is that, man? And that's the thing. All the shows I do, I I I read from their own words. I, that's what I give people. I'll tell you what I'm reading from, and I'll read it to you verbatim off the page, and I'll give my little, you know, asides as to what my opinion is of this or my interpretation of what they're saying, but it's in their own words. I mean, that's the thing. I have a vast digital library of these types of documents, these policy white papers, think tank group papers, um, you know, peer reviewed scientific journals talking about these many things. And I'll, I, I read on my podcast and on all the broadcasts and stuff I do verbatim what these people say, what they think they're going to accomplish, who they claim that they are and who they think you are in comparison and what their plans are for you. And I know a lot of people, you know, a lot of this stuff may say a little bit beyond the pale or may sound like a bridge too far for some, but I assure you, I mean, I I don't tell you anything that's not written there in black and white that's, you know, available for the public to find. It's all out there. It's an open conspiracy very largely. But all of these things, when you trace back the origins of them, like I said, they tie back to these various places. There's an occult underpinning to all of it. It has ties to eugenics and it has ties to this depopulation agenda. And that's the three big kind of undercurrents that uh, are there that are worthy of discussion here. I don't know if you guys wanted to go real deep down the rabbit hole into the occult aspects of it. Because we could just keep it on the basic level of what would be considered mainstream science here and mainstream history. Uh, but there are occult angles to it, too. And this is all well documented within the various secret society books that they've kept through the years that up until the advent of the Internet were almost impossible to get your hands on unless you were a member of one of their fraternities and had access to one of their libraries. But now a lot of this stuff, thankfully, is out there. It's digitized and put into different areas out there different archives out there internet archive is a good place to look for some of this stuff i love that site <laughs> yeah me too yeah. <laughs> i will there's say there's a lot on there wayne here's what i'm thinking okay i think we start at the mainstream level we speak in science scientees or whatever and then we can get into the occult stuff because i'm more familiar with that than most would think just because i 
you're right. It's right there. It's it's completely connected and the patterns are as clear as day. But before we get into the mainstream stuff on this, George, did you have anything you wanted to throw at Wayne? Oh, I just I want to sort of observe that the the method you talked about uh, just sort of mirrors what we've seen with so many catastrophic transformations in human society. People are very willing to acknowledge that, you know, some people are going to have to die or, you know, bad things are going to happen. Somehow they always think it's not going to be them, that they're going to be part of the beneficiary group. It's like, man, a classless society sounds great, you know, until you realize that you're a Kulak and you're not going to be part of that classless society. People always somehow think that they can support devastating and completely inhuman atrocities to create some sort of better world. They always think they're going to be one of the people who enjoy the better world, but in reality, of course, 99.99% of them are not. They're going to be Kulaks, and they're going to be in a mass grave in the Urals. Oh, absolutely, and I think there's a lot of public figures, public political figures, that have said something that's essentially very similar to that, like Henry Kissinger has out and out said, we're going to go through a time where there's going to be all kinds of uh, catastrophes and mass die-offs and stuff like that. But when we come out the other side of it, we'll be better off for it. I mean, and you have people like statesmen saying this stuff on public record in various places. And you have to wonder, like, why don't people pay attention to things like that? But they, by and large, they don't. Uh, Or they... uh, you know, throw the banner conspiracy theory on it and relegate it to the the trash pile. But the thing is, there's there's definite written records of all of these different ideas. I would recommend if anybody's interested in understanding the ideas of about social change and how it works, and one of the big tools that they use to do so, look up a book called Changing Images of Man. This was a Stanford Institute study that was headed up by Margaret Mead and uh, Joseph Campbell was in on it. A lot of uh, prolific people at the time were in on this study and they they decided that they need a new image for mankind. Man needs a new image for himself, what his place is in the universe, his relationship to God, his relationship to the world, the universe himself, a new image. So this is what they start with. It's about changing people's minds or their thought processes on a a large scale level. Now, this is something that's a subjective type thing, though. So it's hard to objectively quantify it. So they've come up with some strategies to do so. And some of the tools that they leverage in this way are things like mythology. So I can't under underestimate or or tell people enough i should say i can't tell people enough about the importance of mythology understanding old mythology because we're missing so much in this world today that's going on around us based upon these mythological archetypes that we see round about us and we don't have that background we don't have that base knowledge like we did at one time in western education You had a foundation in what was called the classics at one time. We don't have that anymore. We're not taught about mythology in school today. We don't have that basis. So many of the symbols that are outright there in our faces, we miss. And we don't understand a lot of the nuance involved with it. But there are people in positions of power in this world who still get this classical education. And they wind up in places of prominence. And they understand a lot of what is presented there. 
And this is a type of communication, a type of meta communication that's used by those in the upper class or the upper crust, the one percenters, the, the ones who really control things and run things behind the scenes. It's a communication that they have. It's right out there in the open. People don't recognize it for what it is, though, because they, they lack the background in it. And they communicate in this way. And this is this is a tool used by the secret society groups. It's often referred to in Freemasonry as the green language. OK, mm. it's it's known by many names. It's also called twilight language sometimes uh, by people. It, it's the language of symbology, essentially. And this is a communication tool that they use uh, to impart different ideas or to make their footprint known on something in many, many ways. Uh, but I, I feel like I'm getting sidetracked off the trail here a little bit again. No, guys. Wayne, the, you're, you're doing good, man. Like I, I will, I will ask George though to, to chime in because he is a classicist. George, what did you want me to chime in about? I wanted you to explain your background a little bit so Wayne knows who he's talking to. Oh, I um, I'm a classical philologist. I have three degrees in classical philology. Um. My particular area of interest is I look at ethnic determination in the ancient world, how people get sort of sorted into in-groups and out-groups in ancient societies. Oh, it sounds like a fascinating topic. I think I'm talking to the right people here. Yep. That's good. Yeah, no, and it's especially since the web sort of relates to what we were talking about, about, you know, the the people who are going to reap the benefits of some sort of transhumanist, trans, um societal overhaul versus the people who are going to pay the price for it is that's definitely an in-group out-group kind of thing it, it, absolutely it is and you could trace the trail of this all through time and like i said it, it finds its roots back in what's called the ancient mystery schools that's where all of these different derivations come from of these groups that come into positions of power when you trace it back as far as you can now there's these different mystery schools and mystery religions in antiquity that uh, took hold, but the priestcraft of those secret organizations, those mystery schools, the mystery teachings, the priesthoods of the various mythologies, as we would call them today, they all were taught the same things and understood the same things, whether it be the Dionysian cults or the Bacchic cults, all of these things, they all practiced the same the same type things. They understood the symbology behind it, and they could actually transcribe from one of these mystery schools to another and have some of the same basic teachings. They might change up the names a little bit as to what they call certain things, but it's all the same teachings. And you could trace this forward to today through the secret society groups. They've brought forward many of these teachings, and these are the these occult teachings on which many of these things are founded. And this is where you get this, this power divide, this, this power dynamic that comes into play, because you have this priestcraft, okay, in antiquity that had secret knowledge that they held over the others. So if they had the ability, if they understood how to perhaps read star charts or understand the moving of the stars in the sky, they could predict when an eclipse came about. And I'm just giving this because this is a mainstream, fundamentally accepted type of a narrative that's been given to people. So they could predict an eclipse. So they tell the people, hey, if you don't pay your tithe if you don't offer up your uh your your crops for the 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 uh the tribute here then the sun's going to go black for a day and 
then this happens and they could predict when this happens they could use this as leverage over other people so this is the kind of thing they talk about they call this the secrets of the ages and they they have many different secret hidden teachings within these secret society groups that they don't let to get out to the profane that's you and i that's anybody out there in the public that's not a member of one of these groups and this is the same kind of thing it's been passed down from generation to generation and they only let in the ones that they deem worthy and oftentimes this is related back to certain family bloodlines all throughout history and it's it's come down to today where you have these secret occult teachings behind the scenes here with things but uh, they've also tended to take some of these older ideas these older alchemical sciences or natural sciences things like hermeticism and they've tied them to today's sciences in many ways and like i said physics and metaphysics they're the flip side of the same coin it's the same coin it's just physics is the heads metaphysics is the tail and it was understood by many of the old philosophers this kind of way of thinking but philosophy's kind of taken a back door in the modern era as has a lot of the religious ideals here and a lot of people have actually taken the stance that religion and philosophy kind of butt heads and that's not true I, I forget who said it, but somebody said religion without philosophy is dead and philosophy without religion is lost. Mm. Uh, so this kind of thing is is true. You need both of these sides of the coin. It's the same thing. Once again, religion and philosophy, same coin, just the opposite sides. So with this in mind, when you bring these things forward and understand that these occult underpinnings, these old occult sciences underlie our modern sciences in many ways, and they are interchangeable in some senses when you apply hermetic thought to things in, as one example, then you could understand how some of these things have been kept hidden and kept under wraps uh, by some of these people who control these things. And a lot of it has to do with the banking families that have been set up at the top of the power structure they control a lot of where the money goes if you control where the money goes you control where the research goes and you control what the outputs are it has to do with a little science called cybernetics uh and you know we can we'll probably have to touch base on that a little bit here too this is so much to unpack in a short <laughs> two-hour show yeah uh, so i mean i I've, I've literally devoted years of my life uh, you know, probably close to two decades now unpacking all this and and reverse engineering a lot of it. So it's hard to really unpack in just a short episode here for people who haven't heard anything about it before. Well, that's why I'm so, glad you, you have your own podcast these days, because now I know one where I can find you consistently and two, you can unpack it there. Uh, this is supposed to be this is more like a uh, a beginner's guide, you might say, to understanding the connection between science and the occult. And that's What's tough about the occult is even that word itself is like a is like a, a fence to keep people out because they're like, oh, that's dangerous and evil. And yes, yes, it is. But also it's better to understand what's being done to you or and you'll maybe you'll stop being so confused about why everything sucks all the time and where you're being programmed to disappear from this planet as soon as possible. Well said. That's absolutely the, the key of it. What general would go onto a battlefield if he hasn't studied his enemy? He doesn't know what his motivations are, what his tactics are, what his, uh, what his goals are. So if you know about what these people have in mind, what their goal is, what their tactics are, 
where they come from, what motivates them, then you understand a little better what is being done to you and why. You see, and that's where we're at in this world. I have a lot of people who maybe are beginning to understand what's going on and see that there is something going on. But the large question I always get asked is, why would they do that? Yep. Well, that's a complicated issue. And that's why I have taken so long to try to unpack this. And it's probably good to break it down in steps. And I, I try to do that on my podcast. So if you've listened from episode one on forward, you'll begin to understand some things. And I, I write my books in the same way, in a kind of linear type of a path here for people who don't understand, who are maybe coming in at the ground floor on a lot of this. So that's always something I could recommend too. And that gives people some different points to look at too. I always like to try to make sure I direct people, hey, you could read such and such here uh, and or hear about this in this place and understand what's going on that way. But as far as the mainstream science of it all, we could probably get into that uh, now that we've defined some of the key terms, like what transhumanism means, first of all. And, uh, you know, I know we kind of went down the little trail there and took it back into yeah. history pretty far. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, by and large, many of these same teachings, this all ties back to what's called apotheosis. All right. Let's let's get back to the the occult side of it and the ancient side of it. Apotheosis or enlightenment. These are illumination. That's the popular terms. Uh, for a lot of these different things. This is about man transcending himself and becoming God in no uncertain terms. This is what they teach within many of these secret society groups, that man can do this, that man can achieve this apotheosis or this this godlike state, that man through his intellect can tame nature and become the god of this place. And this is largely what's taught. It's taught in the forms of illumination, enlightenment, apotheosis, as some of the terms that are used in some of the older uh, mystery school teachings for this stuff. And it's been brought forward through the ages here. And it's been twisted and perverted and manipulated in a lot of ways. Because many of the old teachings were not intended in a bad way. That's the thing. But the people who decided at one point, hey, if I could, if I know this thing, and that guy over there doesn't know this. That gives me some type of power over him. And this is one of the biggest keys here. Secrecy is a form of weaponized mind control. If you know something somebody else doesn't, you have an advantage over them in many regards. Like, say, for instance, if you're a hunter-gatherer and you know the location of a prolific berry bush, and your neighbor, your your you know that clan across the river that you're always in competition with doesn't know where this is, and you keep that secret from them, and they see you always have all this food, and they they begin to wonder, well, where did you get it? But you don't tell them. You keep that from them, or you use it as a form of manipulation over them. You say, you know, well, do you want to learn about how I gather the berries? And this is a very crude example then, you know, you, you could have some type of power over them. You could make them do foolish things if you feel the need to do so, to maybe learn where the location is or something like that, or to learn the process by which you gather the berries or how you would grow them. And this goes back to the old ideas of agriculture, the beginnings of agriculture and stuff too, how man first learned how to farm the land. Well, that would have a very distinct advantage over the 
the hunter-gatherer, right? Somebody who was a more agrarian and learned how to farm, how to grow their own food and watch the sky and know what season things grow, understand the harvest, this kind of thing. So this is where in the early bits of this secret knowledge come about. Some people through the course of experience or through the need to, they learned how to discern this through their own observation. So they observed, hey, you know, when this, the leaves start turning brown and falling off the trees, that's when we could harvest this crop. That's when there's the most of this crop around. And then they notice that they, they fall on the ground and their seeds go into the dirt. And they, they begin to learn that, hey, where that seed fell, now there's a new plant growing. So they learn how to plant crops, right? Like I said, this is a very crude example, but this is kind of how it works. So they learn this secret. They understand through their observation or through whatever methods that they gather the knowledge or gain the knowledge, whether somebody else told them or not. And they learn to manipulate this because the other guy doesn't know this. So if the other guy doesn't understand it and you do, well, that gives you an, a distinct advantage over them and a type of control over that's, them. That's why it's called a cult. Right. Right. It's hidden. A cult hidden. simply means hidden. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. It's got this negative connotation attached to it these days. And oftentimes rightly so, because you get into like some dark mysticism and stuff that goes along with that. But at, at the same token, you need to understand this has largely been one of the control methods by those people who obtain power in this world from time immemorial. They know something that the average person doesn't, and they use it in a weaponized form against them to garner control over them. So with that being the case, this is largely what's been done by the power structure in the world. So this is why we have that dynamic, that division, why there always seems to be this, this ruling class or those that make the decisions and this underclass that just kind of is the bulk of the masses, just trying to get by and survive in this world. So that's the thing. It's, it comes down to, do you have an altruistic nature? If you know this thing and you want to, do you want to help all these other people? Or do you see them as a burden upon yourself or your tribe, so to say? And that's largely what's happened is these people who have taken up these positions, who have uh, attained this secret knowledge in whatever way through the years decided, I'm not going to help that group. I don't like them for whatever reason, or they're, they're a drain on society. So we're going to keep this information from them and we'll do everything we can to manipulate them, to get them out of the way so that we have all the resources for ourselves. We, the small group, the elite you see, yeah. and this this mentality that's come about. Yeah, well, it's so cynical, isn't it? It's like a, it's like, you know, being jealous of your kid's youth so you don't teach him how to drive a car. You know, it's like, yeah, you're young, you'll figure it out. You know, this feels like something that's actually culturally happening a little bit with uh, certain generations. I won't say what, um, but yeah, the the, spe the specificity of the language, um, and information being hidden. Uh, it reminds me of like uh, street speak or like uh, Cockney or something like that, where the lower class would hide what they're really saying uh, by using words that don't make sense to people who speak regular English, like that sort of thing. Um, but that's not my wheelhouse. That's George's wheelhouse. Yeah, and absolutely. Uh, if you go back and you look at uh, the language of the gypsies, this has largely been one that's mo been modeled after by many of the secret society groups and stuff too. Uh, if, you, if you trace that back. Um, so... That, yeah, there's a lot of this that goes on, and it's a very in-depth topic, but it's kind of off-topic for what we're talking about. But this is just uh, kind of a basis here for 
so people could understand how these power structures get themselves in place through the course of time. And oftentimes it's the same family bloodlines coming down generally generationally like this one's kid will induct him into the society will let him know this and they, they look after their own and at some point the bulk of the masses get separated from what this core tr knowledge is and could be manipulated in that way so that's just a basic overview of how you get from the mystery schools to forward to today now if you start to insert people from the secret society groups that came forward from there into various important public positions within, say, governments of the world or uh, governmental type agencies, then you can start to make some real headway with your agendas if you have an, a centralized agenda coming from somewhere within your secret society group. And this was largely been done. I mean, this is documented if you go back and you look at the Bavarian Illuminati founded May 1st, 1776 by Adam Weishaupt. They got caught doing this. <laughs> then one of their messengers got struck by lightning and killed when he was delivering a message from Weisop to some other well-placed Illuminatus. And they got caught in what this plan was, where they talked specifically about infiltrating different governments and infiltrating Freemasonry and other secret societies, too, to get their people into positions of power within government and within various places and they were talking about taking over the world and this is this is mainstream history you could look this stuff up now this has gone from then there there's there's secret society books that talk about the continuation of the illuminati from there but mainstream history will tell you the illuminati was totally disbanded and every vestige of it disappeared in 1790 but that's not true. <laughs> Let's put it yeah. that way. Yeah. I have writings that show the Illuminati is a real active thing today, written in their own books that were hidden away in their secret libraries for many years, decades. And it's it's a real order that exists. And it's kind of the inner circle of the inner circles of these various secret society groups. Because as I said, if you go back to the beginning phases, back if you look back at the ancient mystery schools, all of these, this priestcraft of these mystery teachings, these mystery religions, wherever they were, they all understood some of the same basic secrets, and they all communicated with each other. You see, in the Lucinian mysteries, the Bacchic mysteries, they all had common elements to them, and that's because of this priestcraft. They were the inner circle, okay? These were the guys that uh, communicated with one another, understood various things, and had the real power in this world so you got this guy over here who's running this cult and this guy over there that's running that cult and they're having them do the same things and they're benefiting from it and one tells the other hey i i tried this and this worked for me maybe you should try that here and if you look at how this all goes down you see the same patterns begin to emerge over and over again so this is how the whole idea of the inner circle within the inner circle came about and this is what you would call the Illuminati today. Now, it's become a catch-all term in this day and age for anything that they consider, you know, the, the big group that controls the world or whatever. And it's kind of nebulous because you could never truly pin down specific names. Uh, we have some ideas, but uh, can't pin down specific names as to who's who. But the mainline history of the Illuminati shows that this is the very thing that they intended to do. So this the is, intentions there. I don't mean to interrupt, but 
This is yeah. so interesting we're getting into this because George is currently researching an episode about the Medici family um, and banking control, and I'm currently researching the French Revolution. And what's crazy about that is how tied up they actually all are. Uh, George, I don't know if you want to chime in a little bit. Yeah, I'd love to hear your take on that because th this is the thing I've discovered. It, it's it's all related. And as we get into the history of transhumanism and stuff a little more here, you'll see how it's related. I mean, already we pointed out the fact that um, Sir Francis Galton was the guy that coined the phrase eugenics. He was Charles Darwin's cousin. Charles Darwin lifted most of his scientific research and his discoveries from his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin. Most people don't know about that either. And his Darwin, Darwin's ideology was largely pushed by, his name was uh, Thomas Huxley. He was the grandfather of Aldous and Julian Huxley, Julian Huxley, who coined the term transhumanism in the modern era. So all these connections are there. They're always there. Every time I've ever looked back at any of this stuff, there's always this inner circle, this connection. There's always the uh, the royal society attached to a lot of things. There's all these same groups turn up over and over again, too. But I'd love to hear your take on this. Uh, as far as I can tell. What, George, do you want to start? I'm talking a lot. Well, I was going to say one of the one of the things that makes it sort of hard to pin down or recognize is that the elite, whatever you want to call them, it's a group that uh, isn't entirely exclusive, that it can change. Like going back to one of my research in the Medicis, the, one of the, the most interesting things about them is that they actually came from the outside. They were not a sort of old, powerful family. They entered into that sort of elite exclusive group of uh, of rulers through generations of building a political power base, but they were originally outsiders. They weren't even originally one of the sort of old, powerful banking families. They were originally a very minor family, but they were able to work their way into that. And I think that's it's sort of, uh, especially in the American experience, it's one of the things that makes it kind of hard for people's because on the surface, things look almost, uh, you know, egalitarian in that, look, see, anybody can rise to the top. And in a sense, that's true because people can come into that elite from the outside, but it's a process that takes generations and is very, very hard, but it allows them to have this veneer of sort of egalitarianism, democracy, whatever you want to call it to the whole elite dominance of society. Absolutely. And I would say the Rockefeller, Rockefeller clan falls lock, stock, and barrel into that type of a, a, a thing, too. You see, because that's what happened here in the Americas is a lot of these new 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 riche or nouveau riche, they, I think is the term they use for it, the new rich, they kind of intermarried into the old family bloodlines, the old banking families and stuff like that from Europe. Uh, so that's kind of one of the ways in which they they broaden their power base, right? But they also uh, attach new different names to this power base. And the continuation does kind of go sideways sometimes. But the thing is, if you do research the Medicis and some of these other families, yes, they may have started from the outside, but they kind of weave their way in. And like you said, it takes generations for this to happen. And if you start to trace the roots again, you see how the old, uh, 
well, they, they, they call it the black nobility in Europe. These old black nobility families tend to intermarry back into some of these outside families that come in and they intermingle. And it's to the point where if you trace the lineages back far enough, every single American president except for one has the same relative in Scotland. If you, that's, uh, <laughs> that's there was a twelve. That was a, there was a twelve-year-old girl a couple of years ago that did some kind of a school report on that. And the YouTube video is still out there. I forget which president it was that was. It might have been like James K. Polk or something like that. But they're all Van, related. I think it might have been Van Buren. Yeah, Van Buren. That could be it too. I don't remember who it was, but yeah, I mean, absolutely, this is a real thing. So, like this whole family bloodline thing, it, it's 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 a real true thing that goes on. And when you trace these things back to who are the ones that shape political landscapes in an era, it's always these same families they come about and they do this. It's these same family bloodlines. The names may change a little, like if you come across and uh, like my last name's McCroy, my uh, relatives back in Scotland are McElroy. Uh, so it's a shortening of the names and the changing of the names between different uh eras and generations and when they migrate different places, this kind of thing. But if you trace back the genealogies and stuff, and I assure you, these people in positions of power in the world today are obsessed with genealogy. They absolutely uh, are totally obsessed with genealogy because of this stuff. Is this because they're like hyper-materialistic in their thinking? Uh, There's a lot of different reasons for it. A lot of it has to do also with... uh, they, they believe they have the divine right to rule in many regards, these different families. If they could trace their lineage back to certain places, they believe they have the divine right to rule. Uh, so that's why they're obsessed with this idea. So they think that they are somehow different than other human beings. And this is a topic like, you know, that would certainly uh, be a topic for another day. But <laughs> I mean, there's there's these different divides in people groups and a lot of it has to do with blood type uh, that they seem obsessed with as well they they tend to look at rh factor in blood type as a defining thing for some of these family bloodline groups that they would tend to call the royal families Uh, and this is something that's kind of sketchy and it's hard to trace down so it's not something i talk about a lot uh, because it's 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 not really something you could outright prove at this point but there's a lot of correlating information that goes there and there's certain things that tie back to these secret society groups and these occult fraternities that go back to the ancient mystery schools that tend to lend credence to this idea that they're obsessed with family bloodlines so uh, with that being the case it seems weird that all those people that enter into these places of power in this world are usually related (laughs) so yeah uh, it's, it's just one of those weird dichotomies of thought, but it, it's something that definitely backs up some of this idea, this underlying occult theme behind it as to what their reasoning is. And that's not really the point of me being here today is discussing that, but uh, it certainly relates in a lot of ways. And it's weird, like I said, how all these different trails overlap. Well, it's attached to everything because it appears to be the, the whole goal. I mean, uh, we've talked about depopulation before on our show, and it's like, yeah okay so you know i i told a guy recently a good friend of mine he was having some some difficult times and i said under no circumstances are you allowed to rage quit and by that i meant you know off himself (laughs) for them i said you're not allowed to rage quit 
um, because that's the way they've programmed pretty much everything uh, for the common people out here. They don't want you to have kids. They don't want you to have long-lasting relationships. They don't want you to form meaningful bonds with people around you. They don't want you to be able to live without them, but also they don't want you to live. <laughs> so, you know, it, when so when uh, all these streams get crossed, it's like, well, it all goes back to like, are you going to be here? Are you going to produce offspring? Um, are you going to be a science project? Uh, no, then you're, you know, happy trails, partner. <laughs> so. Yeah, they have a term for that. They like to call us useless eaters. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, that I've heard many times. Uh, so, like, the whole point here is simply this. It's like there's a, a very select few people in positions of power that have positioned themselves in a place in this world where they have control over a lot of these different innovations that go on in society. They also have these ties back to these occult groups, and they have these occult agendas that they're putting in place through the use of these technologies and these different innovations that they have the means and the ability to fund. So they find people that they would call maybe more useful to them that they put into positions of power or give them positions of prominence and give them the funding to do the things they want them to do. And they let them do this stuff and they give them some direction. And usually it's with the paycheck attached to it. And this is why it, largely in this day and age, much of the science we see, it's it's coerced science. I mean, you could throw together a scientific study to show anything you want to show as long as you put the money behind it. You could manipulate data to show whatever you want, whatever uh, pre-arrived at determination you want to show in that study. Yeah, and then you dress and, it up in weird green language that people don't understand, like at a certain level. And, right, and jargon. Yeah, and well, all kinds of scientific jargon and stuff like that too. There's there's actually like a, a chapter in that hideous strength called the liquidation of anachronisms, and that's just a sciency way of saying they're going to kill the farmers. Yeah, man, it's a, they That's don't what want they you do. to farm. They, yeah, but that that but like the liquidation of anachronisms when they're when they're talking about it in theory, they don't say we're going to kill farmers. They say we're going to liquidate anachronisms, and that language itself is like nonsense to most normal people who don't have time to read the dictionary. Uh, George, I kind of want to get see if you have something to say about that sort of thing, cloaking with language. Hmm. Well, that's a. That's a, that's a pretty open-ended yeah. question. Cloaking with language. Well, I mean, there's a a long history through not just the, the Western world, but throughout the whole world of developing ways of speaking which are really only intelligible to a sort of initiated, not necessarily in a sort of mystical or religious sense, but an initiated group. So I spent a long time in my graduate studies working with... Uh, the intellectual milieu of Alexandria, which was kind of the the focal point and center in the ancient world of mysticism, mystery religions. It's of course where all the Hermetic texts were being uh, being put together and edited. And when you re when you read Alexandrian Greek literature and poetry, it's hard. It's very very difficult. It's very unlike what you sort of uh, grew up with if you were learning normal. Attic Greek from the historians or older forms of Greek from some of the epic poetry. It's a very 
convoluted and nuanced form of the language in which almost every word is not just uh, indicating, you know, a meaning, but is also very intentionally chosen to bring with it a whole series of references to other works and mythological motifs. And it's like every single word has a backstory. That's why when you're getting a critical edition of some of these, especially like Alexandrian mystical texts, you know, your actual text for every 10 pages, you might have 150 pages of commentary because almost every word is chosen in such a way that not only does it you know, mean something in a definition, but it also references all sorts of other works, different ideas, schools of thought. It's what you might call a Kunstsprache, a art speech, a type of speech that's put together to not only convey a specific meaning, but to carry on a whole tradition of referencing previous works that you really have to have spent for the Alexandrian scholars your whole life working with in order to really understand what the text is saying. So yeah, there's definitely, and I'm sure that sort of stuff is still going on in the way they use words, not only to indicate some thing in reality, but also to harken back to ideas meanings metaphors and motifs which will be recognizable to those who know how to use this type of speech right meta meaning all these words have meta meanings to them and the bible is broken down in the same way theologians will tell you there's about seven different ways seven different ways to interpret scripture and it's the same scripture but it could have various different levels of meaning depending on which way you're looking at it and breaking it down uh, so it's the same thing going on here and it does still go on today and it st does still go on in the mystical context too as well as being initiated that's what these secret society groups are all about they're all about initiation and if you're initiated and you're an adept in the order you learn certain things and you have to study certain uh stories and understand the connotations and the connections between the stories and then you could find the meta meanings in what's being shown here and this is why i i always tout the importance of mythology because they've thrown it in our faces in the modern era these different mythological stories and we don't recognize them but see here's the thing that's important that i always tell people even if you don't recognize it on a conscious level on an unconscious level you do because this is what's called an archetype what Carl Jung called an archetype. And the idea predates Jung. He was an, an alchemist, just in case you guys didn't know that. Carl Jung was absolutely an alchemist. He understood many of these mystical principles, as well as the scientific disciplines that uh, were common for him in that day. And he's largely one of the ones that turned the word archetype into an everyday word. He took some of these older ideas, was able to articulate them in an intelligent way that people could understand and give them a kind of more sciencey feel to them. So he used the term archetype. So your unconscious mind recognizes the mythological archetype that's being invoked here because it's something that's primal, right? It's something that refers back to an older era. Now, mystics might call this... Uh, like ancestral memory or something like that, or, uh, you know, our modern science calls it genetic memory or epigenetic memory. We have these things that we just understand, this archetype, this frame of reference in some way, shape, or form. Our mind recognizes it. Uh, so, uh, and some of the mystics would call it the Akashic record, this kind of thing too. But this is something that's inherently there. You will recognize the mythological archetype that's being presented to you on an unconscious level, maybe not consciously, but you will recognize it on the unconscious level and it will affect you subconsciously. And eventually 
manipulate your conscious behavior in a sense. And that's something that was recognized by many of these policy think tank groups. That book I mentioned earlier on, Changing Images of Man, that absolutely tells you in no uncertain terms what I just said to you here. They will utilize mythological principles and archetypes to steer the behaviors of the masses. And that's why they wanted to change man's image of himself, change the image of man for the future. And this, like I said, this was a Stanford Institute study, and a lot of big shots in cybernetics and other sciences were involved in that. Uh, that that's another important topic, cybernetics. Um, we might go a long time here, guys, if you keep well, me talking like let this. Me, let, me, let, me, let me give you a, a direction then. Let's go to cybernetics. Let's get to that. Like, what, what does that mean? Because when I think, again, when I think cybernetics, I'm thinking like, you know, I get laser eyes or something like that. That's what my brain thinks because that's all I know about cybernetics, what they say in the movies and stuff. So what are you referring to with cybernetics? Well, the actual definition of cybernetics is this is the science of whole systems control. Any type of system. It's about controlling systems. It's about finding the most efficient and effective way to control a system or to change a system. Any system. This could work for anything, not only biological systems. It could work for the banking system, economies, whole economies can be controlled cybernetically. Uh, so a lot of people will associate cybernetics with robotics and stuff like that. And that's absolutely a part of it. But it's only a minor part. Cybernetics is the, the study of whole systems control. So this takes a holistic approach to controlling a system. Whereas our modern education system has us breaking things down into compartmentalized type views. Like look at how they teach us in school. You have all these separate 40-minute subjects. You have science, you have math class, you have English class, all these things mm -hmm. all compartmentalized apart in very short time frames, keep you confused and keep you from thinking on a holistic, the holistic level of these things. They never really cross paths or anything like that. So it's about compartmentalization. And this is a tool that's been used by uh, those controllers of this world as well. They like to compartmentalize things in a lot of different ways. Like you have a specialization, right? Most jobs require a specialization, especially in the sciences. Okay, well, you're a biologist, or for a good example, doctors. Doctors have a lot of specializations. Oh, you're a podiatrist. You're the doctor that handles the feet, right? Mm -hmm. Well, this is not how cybernetics works. This is the opposite of cybernetics. Cybernetics looks at the whole big picture and finds the most efficient and effective ways to achieve the goals that it wants within that system. So it's whole systems control, not just about one certain portion. And they've conditioned us in the modern era to think in compartmentalized terms. Special back to, to Austria, doesn't it? Austria. Well, this goes back actually to just post-World War II, the advent of cybernetics. Yeah. Uh, this goes back to operations research in World War II, right. actually, if you want to get down to where it comes from. I well, the Macy Foundation, the, the the military schools that came out of Austro-Hungary. Oh yes, well, yeah, they certainly had a a part in this because this is what uh, Eisenhower came up with his his administration. They decided they wanted to do operations research, which was using limited supplies in the most efficient way. It was like a logistics type based thing. So they were trying to take what military equipment and resources they had and use them in the most efficient way possible. So they put together groups from various different scientific disciplines to study this problem. And they, they found that this interdisciplinary meeting of the minds was a very good way to actually find solutions to problems. 
So they started putting together meetings and by and large, what happened was, I think it was in 1944 was the first Macy Foundation meeting, if I remember correctly. They had uh, the Macy Foundation uh, financed this meeting of these various people from these various different scientific disciplines. And they met together and they got along so good that they decided once the war was over that they would meet back again and discuss various things and put together some solutions for problems. And this was called the Cybernetics Group. And they they had done this, and the cybernetic science has grown out of this. Now, the term cybernetics was coined by a gentleman named Norbert Wiener back then. But essentially, yeah, that guy probably got made fun of a lot in school. But, <laughs> but uh, th- this is the guy that coined the phrase cybernetics, but it's actually derived from Greek, from the Greek word kybernetes, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, which literally means steersman or pilot. It's about controlling systems. So they applied some of these different disciplines to controlling various different systems. And one of the ones that's important that they looked at was biological systems. And this harkens back to the work of a gentleman named Walter Cannon in the 1920s, who took the work of an earlier doctor from France, I think in the 1790s, I can't remember his name, but he came up with the idea of homeostasis. So they developed these homeostatic mechanisms, this this framework for control with homeostatic mechanisms. Now, a good example of this would be like a thermostat. You could use your thermostat to control the temperature in the room, right? If you have an AC unit and a heater, uh, an HVAC unit, and you set the thermostat at 70 degrees, if it drops below 70 degrees, the heat will kick on, warm the room back up to 70 degrees. If the temperature goes up to 77 or something, the AC will kick on and and reduce the temperature back down to 70. So they determined the, the human anatomy functions in very much the same way, that there's these different homeostatic mechanisms that are inherent in just about every system. So in order to maintain the balance of the system, they were able to come up with advanced mathematics to calibrate various systems. And they determined ways in which they could use inputs and outputs to control these systems. And thus the science of cybernetics was born. And it was really kind of a quantifiable thing. Now they've applied this in a lot of different ways, especially behaviorally in the modern era. They know that they could take certain subjective types of archetypes, present them to the public and incite a reaction that they want from the public. Now, it's a very generalized thing in some instances, but they understood they would largely get a percentage reaction out of a portion of the masses that they want. And they've been able to tinker with this and streamline things since then. So with this cybernetics methodology, they could do social engineering on a mass scale. And what have we seen happen here the past couple of years? How many people capitulated to the nonsense that they were fed? And all of this has a cybernetic space to it. Uh, If I can hop in for just a second here. Yeah, go ahead. You're absolutely correct. So, yes, uh, kubernetes, the Greek word, yeah, means uh, the one who steers or, yeah, directs, since it's often used with ships. If you take that from the the Greek, trace it up a couple lines in Indo-European, then take it down into Latin, you get gubernator, which of course comes into English as the one who governs government. Yes. Yeah. Governor uh, and cybernetic are etymologically the same word. Boys, I might have to light up a cigarette. We're getting deep. <laughs> oh, we've only scratched the surface here. <laughs> I know Wayne, I've been listening to you long enough, brother, to know that this is just the surface level. And Aaron's been uh, talking to me long enough that he knows anytime anyone uses a Greek word, I've got to chime in. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. Cause I mean, that validates what I'm saying. Absolutely. So yeah. I, I, that's the thing. I, I don't just say things rashly. I I definitely have valid research behind it when I'll I'll say something. There's definitely all of these different things out there, and it, it's in the public forum. That's the thing too. It's like I said, it's largely an open conspiracy going on. I, white papers. There are so many batshit crazy white papers out there that you can just look up and nobody reads and if you said half the things in them people would be like that's crazy and, and they're and there yeah like I've, i was shocked when i realized how many absolutely insane you know quote-unquote conspiratorial things are literally available open access white papers published by think tanks you know associated with all sorts of government agencies that just lay things out and nobody reads them well we do that's one of the <laughs> things that we do on secrets of saturn when we do secrets of saturn i we was pick... i was tearing my hair out listening to you guys read the spars document i was like oh, there's man. no way there's no way and then i go and look it up on my phone at work i'm like it's right there <laughs> Right there in black and white. Yeah. And that wasn't even, a, you know, the, the other one that was the, uh, uh, what was it called? Um, trying to think. They they had another one that happened prior to that. Just prior. It happened in October. They did this uh, training at Johns Hopkins for a coronavirus pandemic in October of, of 2019. Just prior to the, the rollout of this whole thing. Uh, what was it called? Event 201. Look up Event 201. Right. That, yes, that's, that's one right. that happened, too. We we covered that ad nauseum, too. But the Sparks one, yeah. That, they had most like people the, they can't had even like, believe stuff like that's real. They had, like, is. the made-up tweet of, of from, like, the rapper. And he was tweeting like a rapper. And he was like, yo, dog, this, vi this virus is crazy. And they're like, this is what it's going to look like. We're going to have rappers talk like this about the virus. And I'm just like looking at them like, they really think we're useless. They think we're really stupid. And then the funny thing is like, they talk to us like they've forgotten how to talk to normal human beings. So they get Elmo to come out and freaking sing to us about like staying inside and wearing our masks. Do you remember that? Did you see that, Wayne? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what. <laughs> they they went out of their way to make sure that like it was insanity. It's still insanity. Did you hear the new thing? Now there's a new variant called the Kraken. I'm not kidding. Yeah, I they're that. calling it the Kraken. So uh, it never ends with these people. It never does. Uh, half of the time you got to wonder, is this really is this a poke in the eye? Are they are they mocking us and teasing us with this stuff? I think and so. I think they are. And there's actually some uh, real connections occult connections to that being a possibility too i think i've gotten into that on some of my programs as to the reason why they would make merriment of something like that they take a little bit of pleasure in mocking the masses with a lot of things so this this is it's just it's beyond just, the pale to think that just this why actually as a as a wise man once said the industrial revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race <laughs> Yes, indeed. <laughs> Wise man. Uh, wow. I just I just read that. Where did I read that? Did it's, you... the, uh, it's the opening line of Industrial Society and Its Future by uh, the eminent mathematician, Dr. Theodore Kaczynski. Oh, there you go. Okay. The, the Unabomber, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I know I've read that somewhere before. 
Oh my gosh. Two years before they started making movies and TV shows about that guy, I downloaded the book and I read at least the first 30 pages and I was like, I felt like I was on a watch list just for having it. And then they they started popularizing it, so we just started making jokes about it on the show. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I know. I remember I, uh, <laughs> at one point when I was in graduate school, I had access to a uh, official university printing server. Uh, we weren't technically supposed to because it was a state school, and so technically we were supposed to pay for printing. But the secretary was really nice and let me hook my computer up to the printing network so I could print for free. And so I printed off the whole the whole thing, whole industrial society in its future. And like before I got to the printer to get it, somebody else had also put in a printing job. And so one of the other grad students like comes into the the lounge and is like, uh, "Does somebody have a printing job? Uh, industrial?" I was, "Yep, that's mine." <laughs> <laughs> you gotta love some of these these tomes mm-hmm. <laughs> have you ever looked at um oh uh what's his name uh sorry guys i blanked there i could picture his face in my mind um he wrote he wrote some some very large books. <laughs> yeah. Never mind. Never mind. I don't know what direction I was going with that. I'll think of it at some point. It'll pop in my head. I'll be like, oh, yeah, such and such. This, if this you're one. referring to a Russian, I will have you know, there were many of them that wrote tomes. Many And then tomes. killed themselves. And then killed themselves. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> here's, a, here's a book um, that I wonder if you're familiar with or read. Ideas Have Consequences by Richard Weaver. Never heard of that one, but it sounds fascinating. I would highly, highly recommend it. It was written in the 50s by a professor of English at the University of Chicago. And it's, uh, well, the, the title sort of says it all. It's about how real, tangible, and in the view of the author, who's very, very much a sort of reactionary like myself, um, bad changes in society can be can be directly tied to ideas not just so you know we have this idea that in the modern world you know ideas are just sort of floating out there and it's you know it's action that matters but over the over generations ideas change things and not off not always for the better and so he actually his sort of deal was he was looking at the idea of nominalism which really emerged in the philosophical schools of europe in the 13th century um as the underlying root of most of the problems he saw in the modern world rather than it sort of being a a bottom up change it really was a top down change that a new idea took hold among the intellectual elite and over the centuries it led to tangible changes all through the system sort of system systematic transformation Oh, and absolutely, that aligns with the way that uh, these elites in the power structure do things. They have generational plans. They do long-term planning. Yeah, rather so, than sort of looking at all these actual manifestations, be like, okay, we need to change this. You know, we need to destroy the family. Uh, we need to put people in the pods. We need to have the bugs. <laughs> rather than all these individual things, if you could figure out the ideas you need to implement at the top, and then you just sort of let it ferment for a few generations and let that idea work its way down through the uh through the pyramid shall we say um yep. you can bring about all these different and seemingly unrelated effect, uh results from one idea you've implemented from the top down and yeah that's exactly what these sort of spiritual mystical whatever the hell you want to call them elites have done throughout the centuries absolutely and they do it through a slow progression of time so you don't even notice some of the subtle changes 
happening, you know, relatively in relatively short times. But over the course of a long time, it makes a radical change. And this is a concept I call the Overton window, uh, where they could shift the public focus of what's acceptable and normal by introducing more and more radical ideas into the populace here. But it just came to me, guys, the guy I was thinking of was Carol Quigley with his book, Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment. If you've never read any of that, he absolutely tells you 100% the things that the government does behind your back. It's just pretty plain and dry. Uh, so uh, those are good books to get into, but they're they're like Tragedy and Hope's like 1,300 pages or something like that. So that's one of those monumental type books. But this was Bill Clinton's mentor, uh, Dr. Carol Quigley. So that's, you know, what I was thinking of. But uh, aside from that, we, we see how generationally this stuff does occur and you do have this overarching idea that eventually trickles down and produces these other results these symptomatic results of the overarching idea and then i just put that book in the chat by the way if you wanted to oh okay i'll have to download that it's an easy read it's like 150 pages i read it in an afternoon it's a quick it's a quick easy to digest read but it really changed the way i looked at a lot of things it sounds like it's a pretty articulate take on things Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that. I, I've read that too. He, I asked him, I asked him, George, what's the big red pill book I can read? And he's like, Ideas Have Consequences by Richard Weaver. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> and I read, listened to it that afternoon. All right. That's a good one, though. I'll have to keep that in mind. Uh, but what were we, what was the topic we were actually talking about here before we got side trailed? Oh. I'm sorry. I apologize. I side trail a lot. And yeah, I just so go where my mind leads it, me. It, it's not you. It's us. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. We like to hear all kinds of things. So we're a little bit all over the place. But, you know, I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking we may have about 20 more minutes here. So I want to I want to see if I can get one more big question in for you. And then I would like George to do the same. So, George, uh, please do your homework. <laughs> I'll be I'll be furiously thinking over here. OK, OK. <laughs> um. So, uh, Wayne, I, I think one major question I have for you specifically, and because we have you here and you have lots of information, but I think you're important as well. Um, main question I have is what effect do you think us having these conversations on podcasts could actually be having on the public mind? Are we helping or is this just talking, trying to fight the fight the tide? Well, I think it's important that we have these types of conversations because any chance we have to maybe alert more minds to the things really going on in our society around us today, well, that's important. And in my view, I think it's a parietal split kind of thing going on. There's like, if you get above that that 80-20 split, you, you always hear about that in various research topics and stuff like that. So if you could get over 20% of the population having an understanding of many of these things on that level, well, it's game over for these people that are looking to do the bad things to us at the mm. top of the power structure, you see, because it only takes a very small percentage of the people to catch on and say no and knock off their game plan here. So that's the thing. If we get to that split point where we could get more than 20 percent of the population awake and aware of these ideas and their importance and where they're going, the direction they're going, that's the important thing. I think once people begin to realize that, you know what? 
there's people at the top of the power structure that are steering things in a direction that do not benefit the bulk of the masses here. They do not benefit me personally. They have ill intention for me. Once people begin to realize that, then we could take a stance, enough of a stance for things to really have some fundamental change to them. So in my view, I think it's important that we do have these conversations because we are having an effect. Hmm. Like I get contacted by people all over the world and it, it's a humbling experience for me. I'm just a regular guy. Uh, I never had any intention in my life of becoming a public speaker or doing anything like this, broadcasting. It's all It was all Greek to me in the beginning. Like, honestly, I have no clue what in the world I'm doing. Uh, my wife just got tired of me telling her about all this stuff and said, why don't you write a book? So I did. <laughs> and, and that was the my foot in the door for all of this stuff. So at any rate... Uh, the whole point here is it, we are having an effect. Even these small podcasts, every, you never know who's listening. Exactly. Like, you never know who's listening. Like, I have no idea you guys have listened to me. You know? Right. And it's like, it, it's it's astounding when you actually begin to have people contact you and be like, thank you so much for what you're doing. I have a new understanding of things I never had before. It, it's 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 humbling and it's it's rewarding in a lot of ways, too. But the important thing is we need to wake up these minds to the things going on in the world because there's rapid changes coming and we could still have a positive impact on things if enough people are aware of the train that's coming at them. Because that's the whole point here. And this whole transhumanist notion is the big train coming at them. And most people have never even heard of transhumanism. That's something that I'm finding by and large just in my personal circle. Like I, I have a lot of people who, who know what I do here. They they know I write books and I, I do podcasting and radio transmissions and stuff like that. But they don't really have the first clue as to what I really talk about. Oh, just conspiracy stuff he talks about or something. I, I guess that's what they think. I don't know. But like they don't have the first clue when you actually bring it up in conversation. Like, for instance, I, I was at church a couple of weeks ago and one of the the guys that we go to church with, I mean, known him a long time, uh, but just kind of a passing acquaintance, you know, asked me, oh, what do you do? Oh, well, I told him I, I'm an author and researcher and I, I do podcasting and write books and all of this. Oh, what do you write about? Transhumanism. What's that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they, they don't have a clue, but it's important that this stuff gets out there. And that's why it's important that podcasts like this one actually touch on it as well and there's a real history behind it and i know we haven't gotten far into it so we might want to touch on that before we sign off too but you know that that's the whole premise i think we are making a difference in doing this because if enough of these small podcasts get enough airplay it's a grassroots thing and it is having a real effect on people so i do appreciate you having me on as well absolutely george did you want to get a shot in I well, I I wanted to ask about the uh, the title of your cybernetics book, the the Antichrist system, because um, I feel like that's sort of an interest an interesting springboard potentially for talking about that connection between the mystical and occult side of things, uh, the spiritual side of things, and the whole scientific revolution idea. Why did you choose the Antichrist system for this sort of cybernetic worldview? Well, because in my view, that's essentially what's being built here. It's a uh, was given its outline in the book of Revelation. If you look at the, the system that's beginning to snap into place around us, this is by definition what they would call the beast system. You can't buy or sell without a mark. 
uh, and this would be either a chip or a tattoo or something in your forehead or on your hand. That's coming. I mean, the technology is definitely available and in place right now to do that. And then when you consider what's been done in China and what's being ported out to the rest of the world with this biometric ID being attached to people and having them have a social credit score attached to it, that's also a coming concern that I have for this. Because here's the thing, they're collecting people's genomic information in just obscene numbers in the past couple of years. And they're putting that in a centralized utility. Most people don't realize that. It's a blockchain utility that they're putting this in. It's a centralized system that collects genomic information and all of your genetic information. This is going in a database. They're also doing things now like instituting what they call real ID. You need a real ID in most states in the U.S. now. Uh, this is the same kind of thing. It's a next step. See how they play that concept I call the Overton window. Slow steps where you're going to have all of your information attached to this ID. It's going to be electronic. And the whole goal here is eventually they want to get your genomic information, your genetic information, all tied together in this central utility with all your other information, your bank account, everything tied to it in one universal ID with a social credit score attached to it. And anytime you step out of line, they can shut off your access to your money. You can't buy or sell. This is a very real thing. It's planned out. There's white papers talking about it. The technologies exist. The patents are out there. And not ironically, Bill Gates and Microsoft filed for a patent in, I think it was 2020. And this is international patent number 060606. And it talks about... Uh, cryptocurrency from activity, from biological activity. So this is something that uh, has the potential to, for a human being to generate, uh, or what what is the term they use, burn crypto just by doing transactions or by through movements or various things this way. So they have this patent out there and you can search that and see what it is. They have this that was filed as well. And there's all these different systems they have in place. They've been pushing the idea of vaccine passports. And now just earlier this year, they were, well, actually last year now, <laughs> it's, I'm forgetting it's already in January, but last year, uh, late last year, they were talking about having to mandate having a vaccine passport for international travel now. And there's the World Health Organization and all the usual suspects are in on this idea. So they want to attach your biometric ID all together with all of these different utilities, everything about you, all in one centralized utility where they could shut you off at the flip of a switch. So if you step out of line, uh, they could shut you down and make it so you can't buy groceries. You can't participate. And then you add to the fact that they're cracking down on things like uh, uh, somebody just told me recently, I guess this is in. Canada, the government's trying to get people to report if they have a garden in their yard. They want people to report under penalty of law. So like you have all of this stuff going on. They don't want people to be self-sufficient. They don't like that. They want you attached to the system and they want you to have this digital ID. So digital ID and biometric ID attached in one central utility. This is where it's going. 
the hallmarks of it are all in place. The technology and infrastructure is already there. It's just a matter of impl implementation at this point on a large scale. And we're seeing this rollout. And this is primarily why I called this the Antichrist system, because this is exactly the scenario given in the book of Revelation in the Bible, where you can't buy or sell without taking the mark. And what exactly is the mark? Well, that's, that's open for debate, really. But uh, most theologians and Bible scholars would say at this point that it's either some type of a tattoo or a microchip. And by the way, the guys, they have what they call quantum dot tattoos now that can serve the same function as a microchip. Uh, so all of these things exist and are ready to go. And they seem to use the book of Revelation as a playbook, a blueprint to roll out these different things. Well, that's so that's why I named like the book the, that with the whole six zero six zero six, right? Like I went and looked at it. It's like, oh come on, they're doing this as a joke. Like, I mean, I guess it it just really boils down to one question, Wayne: Why do they suck so much? Well, because see. They have where they got it pretty good right now. They have some semblance of power. They think they're better than the rest of us. They think they're smarter than the rest of us. And they want to be the gods of this world in no uncertain terms. So that's why they kind of lash out against nature, natural law, the natural system, the natural world. That's why they... They do everything in their power to invert natural principles, and that's why they want to build this total panopticon system, this wholly artificial system all throughout the world, encapsulating all the world, all of nature, all of mankind together. That's why they push for this whole metaverse type idea, all these digital technologies and these virtual reality systems and augmented reality systems and things like that. Uh, just look in the movies. They, they tell you what they're looking for in no uncertain terms so what that's going to look like who could say for sure but they have certain visions of it that you could see in all the dystopian science fiction movies look at the matrix i think that's a perfect allegory for a lot of this they want people plugged in and you know charging the system you're the big battery for the system but what's really controlling that and where does it go that's right. the whole point here well movies movies are my background you know i didn't study important things like languages i studied uh you know uh silly things like movies and now i'm actually kind of enjoying movies again because it's like i like jason said it's a fun game now because you can sort of decode what they're what it is they're trying to say have you ever seen the movie things to come i've never watched that full thing i've tried to find it on youtube and stuff like that but never was able to find the whole thing just a couple clips that was the hg wells one wasn't it things right. to come that's yeah. right. Yeah. You can probably find the whole thing on Internet Archive, honestly. Oh, yeah. I'll have to look there for it. I have yeah. never watched the whole thing. I mean, right. I mean, it's one of my favorite movies to, to talk about because it was the first the first situation where I could pre predict the entire plot based off of one image. And, and it wasn't a three act structure. You know, it's not like, oh, this is the bad guy. This is, it's like I'm like, you're going to see this, this, this and this in this movie from one image right at the beginning. And there's these people standing outside their house and there there's a war on or something. And there's an air raid coming in. And there's all these spotlights going around like this. And there's this one shot where they're, they're stopped and they form a Freemasonic symbol. And right in that instant, I was like, okay, this is going to be about a movie where people 
get into a situation with a virus. There's world war, um, some kind of pandemic. A man falls from the sky and saves them all with his magic technology. He calls himself like Lucifer or something like that. And, some, and the whole movie was there. That's what it was. And I'd never even read it before. Uh, the The main guy who fell from the sky was literally called Cabal. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> It's always the same symbolism in all of yeah. this stuff, too. And that's that's what I mean. There's always these occult underpinnings and undercurrents to all of it. That's why but, I'd like knowing myth is like having a secret code book. It is. Know? And, you know, you have to know a little bit about the ancient world to understand what's going on. Like, I don't know if you saw today. Now there's news today out of Brazil that they had a January 6th-esque style insurrection in Brazil today. Yeah. Did you see that? I did see All it. the same hallmarks. Of the same thing. And I just broke this down on a couple recent programs that I did. Uh, this is based on the old Feast of Fools. George might know something about the Feast of Fools if you go back into uh, the medieval era. Uh, so that that's what this is. It's a, it's a sim- ceremonial ritual. It's a ritual event going on. That's what Okay, you got to like, hit like us with that breakdown. You can't, you can't just tease that one and be like, oh, it's the... <laughs> Come on, man. What's it's the old? Feast of Fools. That's What's what it the is. Feast it's, of Fools. <laughs> well, if you, if you look up January sixth, if you follow any type of uh, religious background or any kind of philosophical background of any type, January sixth is traditionally celebrated as the the Feast of Epiphany. Epiphany being the uh, baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. Well, this is only one of the celebrations that went on during that time frame, because this was also traditionally the 12th day of Christmas, when they did the 12 days of Christmas, the Feast of Epiphany. And uh, during the Feast of Epiphany, what had happened is, uh, I think it started around in the 11 or 1200s or something like that, but was eventually banned in 1430 by the church. They had what they called the Feast of Fools. Uh, which which occurred during this time, during these these festival days that fell on or around the, the Feast of Epiphany. And what it was is this was when the common people would very much do the New Orleans type thing, the, the Mardi Gras type stuff. They would get together, they would party heavily, uh, they would do all kinds of lewd, lascivious things, and they would mock the leaders of the church and the state on that day. So they would walk around in mo- open mockery with face paint, wearing bullhorns and stuff like that, and they would mock the leaders. Well, the church and the state, they didn't like this, so the church actually banned and outlawed this. Feast of Fools. Well, in my view, what's happened here is, in my view, now people could argue with me all they want with this, but I could absolutely see the hallmarks of this. It looked to me like the whole January 6th insurrection thing, the world's worst insurrection here, was a stage show. And this was a mockery of the American public. I think what happened, in my view, once again, and I reserve the right to be totally wrong about all of this, right? (laughs) But I, I think, in my view, what happened was they got wind that there was probably going to be this grassroots type of a protest or something, that was, you know, against the idea of the election having been validated and and fair. Because I I think, by and large, a lot of people still to this day think something nefarious happened with that election. So I think they got wind of this and they hijacked it because that's very much what happens. And by they, I mean the intelligence community because they're, they go hand in hand with these secret society groups and stuff. And a lot of occultism underlies all that too, in case you didn't know that. 
So I think they they got wind that this was going to happen and they hijacked it and turned it into a big stage show and turned it into a mockery. They twisted it and inverted it on the people because these people are all about the inversion principle. So what used to be this festival that mocked and made fun of the leadership of the era was twisted by the leadership and was used to mock the public. Mm. And that's my view as to what happened. They inverted the idea of the Feast of Fools, turned it upon the public and weaponized it against the masses in an attempt to more readily facilitate their their power. And it was a a signal within the occult community that there may be some kind of a change in the, the power structure coming of those who really run things as far as in the occult circles. So that's just my take on it to kind of simplify it down a little bit that's one of the most interesting takes i've ever heard on it so thank you (laughs) yeah no problem but uh, yeah well they just did a similar thing in brazil now today so there you go i mean they use the same playbooks for this stuff over and over again and it all harkens back to these mythological archetypes once again this is the archetype the feast of fools and they have a similar situation in brazil and they use the same playbook See, that's the thing. They have very limited strategies. They use these same strategies over and over again. Did they leave uh, the doors open in Brazil too? I haven't gotten into all the the different uh, details of it all yet, but I saw it today and I immediately thought, oh, here we go. And look at the date. It's right around the same time. It's it's It would still fall during the traditional Feast of the Fools in back then it was also called the feast of the ass they they celebrated that too and which democrat which party i should say represents is represented by the ass or the donkey uh, there was a whole festival that went with that that was incorporated into this feast of fools too the feast of the ass which celebrated the day that jesus rode on the donkey into town and made a mockery of the leadership there in that sense so, and not only that, it goes back to the story of Balaam's donkey, the donkey that talked back in the Old Testament. Uh, so there's there's all these different religious and quasi-religious festivals and stuff attached to it. But the Feast of Fools itself harkened back to the old Saturnalia celebrations. And that's where that came from, if you go back even further and look. But this was actually intended as a mockery of that original intention here whereas the feast of fools in the medieval times or the medieval period was intended for the masses to mock their leadership and have some frivolous play well the leadership in our country has now turned it around and mocked the public and they're still mocking the public they mock the public every day yeah they really they really do and it's getting obnoxious and kind of intolerable and we should probably stop them somehow but uh, i don't have any ideas outside of just doing a podcast (laughs) um same here man that's why we do this (laughs) yeah uh george are you there are you there sir no of course i'm okay have you got any thoughts because we're gonna have we're gonna have to end this pretty soon well i was gonna say i can think of some ways but not not ones that i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about publicly on a podcast certainly not we understand (laughs) (laughs) not not up for the fed posting right now yeah (laughs) um did you have any final thought, Wayne? We're gonna definitely have to have you back, dude, because you've got a lot of info, and we want you to download more. It's yeah, just man, no problem. Limited on time, you know. No, I hear you, and that's the thing. It's hard to unpack a lot of this stuff in just two hours. So, yeah. you know, I, I certainly it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'd be glad to come back another time. Yeah, we we want to have you back, and I think next time I'll be a little bit less broad about you know what I want to talk about because like you're an encyclopedia of information. And I feel like if we, if we 
I don't know, really aimed at one particular target. Because, like, I was like, oh, Wayne will just talk about transhumanism, and then I just completely forgot that it's connected to everything. Um, yeah, maybe next time I'll, I'll have, like, some very specific questions, and we can really drill down. Hermeticism? You want to talk hermeticism? That's what we should do next time. You think oh, so? I could definitely do that, too. Dude, let, can we do that? Yeah. Yeah? Why not? George. I can George, do hermeticism. Can you do a podcast about hermeticism, George? Uh, I can cer- I can certainly be a uh, relatively competent foil since it is more or less within my area of research since it's, you know, ancient Greek texts. Um, I'm going to have to just be a fly on the wall because I find Hermeticism extremely interesting, but I don't understand a lick of it. Uh, it's it, it's all a matter of how it gets broken down for you. That That's the whole thing. I mean, it, a lot of it may be tough to stomach for some people, but... Once you understand the basics, then you get a good idea. But yeah, that's definitely in my wheelhouse too. Hermeticism's all good. I think- yeah, and I mean, it might be a sort of one note I'd like to sort of end on related to that is that you may not see the importance in it. You may think, well, what is, you know, yeah, these people are evil. I buy that they're doing all this stuff. Why does all this, you know, ancient mysticism stuff even matter you may not you may not recognize it but i think what we can recognize it is that it matters to them and for that reason and that reason alone it's worth having some understanding of because every time some one of these new worldview movements comes onto the scene you know and helena sorry blavatsky starts with uh her theosophical thing importing strange eastern philosophies what do all the followers do they all start naming their little clubs after ancient hermetic things you know the hermetic order of the golden dawn the hermetic order or brotherhood of luxor which had nothing to do with luxor like they think it's important and for that reason alone i think it's worth having some understanding of even if you don't necessarily think that the mystical aspect is important it's important just in that it will give you some insight into the worldview of the types of people we're dealing with Absolutely. That's well said, George. And that's something I always tell people. I always tell people, here's the thing, whether or not you believe any of this stuff, right, is irrelevant. What you need to understand is there are people in positions of power in this world that very much believe in this and understand this and act upon it. And the things they do to act upon it will affect all of us. So it's important to know what it is that they think and believe, what motivates them, why they do the things they do. That's primarily what I do in my work and my research is I try to tell people why are they doing this? Uh, Because everybody is probably thinking, okay, well, maybe I could accept that this is going on, but why would they do that? Mm -hmm. Well, everybody always asks, well, why would they do that? That doesn't make sense. Well, no, it doesn't make sense to you unless you have a background in the occult fraternities and the secret societies and the various teachings thereof, the mystery school teachings that go all the way back, hermeticism, all these foundational things, alchemy. If you have a base understanding of that, then you could better realize what it is they're doing and the principles they're acting on. And they've made no secret of it. That's the thing. It's out there in the open. You just have to have eyes to see. You have to recognize it for what it is. And we don't have a foundation in the classics anymore like we once did to recognize some of the things that they're doing. Like a perfect example of this is CNN back in the 1980s decided to tell us that they were going to lie to us full time 24-7. And they invented the 24-7 news cycle, the 24-hour news cycle, using the story of baby Jessica down the well, which harkens back to the story of Veritas down the well. 
we did a whole show on Crow Triple Seven Radio based on that. I think it was episode 171 or 172. Uh, and we point out this is the mythological archetype they used to tell you that you were never going to hear truth from them on the media again and that they were going to indoctrinate you 24-7. And they used this to roll out CNN as a, a real force in the news world and to inculcate the 24-hour news cycle, which hadn't existed until then. News was always delivered, you know, just 6 o'clock news, 6.30 news, the evening news, or by newspaper. There wasn't a 24-hour news channel on the air at that point. But uh, th this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. And it all ties back to these old occult teachings and hermeticism and stuff. And that's something people don't have a true grasp on. So this is basically the roots of all of this. But um, transhumanism, I'm sorry, we didn't get to talk about it in the depth I had intended. No. Uh, we no, could probably no. do that sometime too. We could do that I, I just too. have to stay focused. That's all. No, you did a, I think you did a great job. I mean, I, I vaguely was like transhumanism is somehow connected. I just want to talk to Wayne, <laughs> but uh, truthfully, yeah, I think uh, if we wanted to do the next one on hermeticism and then maybe if we wanted to get back to transhumanism, uh, we can, we can do that too. But uh, oh, we sure can, because it all ties together. So absolutely. <laughs> that's where the, you know, the, the foundation for transhumanism comes from is out of the old hermetic teachings and, you know, the old, alchemical philosophies and stuff like that things like the idea of the philosopher's stone and, and uh, what the freemasons call the great work that's the fruition of the great work in their view is this transhumanist singularity this apotheosis this becoming god that's what they view transhumanism as it's a type of apotheosis for them it's just a you know more modern term for the same thing it's putting new lipstick on a pig and calling it something different yeah yeah um that's that's really well said. Okay, George, that's it. You got anything? No, I think it's about time to wrap it up. Yep. Well, Wayne, we really appreciate you taking the time with us and being so generous. And um, we're looking forward to to the next discussions we can have. You know, whenever we can get them on the calendar, let's do it. Because uh, I think you're dead right. If people can understand this stuff, um, they're gonna have a much better understanding of the world that's being imposed upon them by the by the screens and by the uh, speakers all at the same time do you have any final words sir i just wanted to thank you again for having me on i always appreciate uh, being able to talk to a new audience even though you know sometimes i may come out as being a little confused and convoluted in how i sound it's not necessarily the case it's just so much information to tie together and try to put in a tidy little uh box here to give to people in a two-hour format it's it's too much sometimes and I do tend to side trail a lot because I just go where my mind leads. Well, that's what podcasting's all about, bud. <laughs> that's what yeah. we're here for. But okay, so very, very last thing. I do this with all the guests. We uh we like to play a song when we end an episode. And we like to let the guests pick the song. So uh what what sort of what sort of song, whether a favorite or something relevant, uh, would you choose if you could pick our our music to play us out? Um Here's a good one for you. It's called Anybody Listening by Queensryche. Anybody listening. That sounds pretty re relevant. <laughs> there you go. All right, Wayne. Well, it's been a pleasure, sir. And we'll talk to you on the next one. All right, man. Just hit me up whenever you can, and we'll do this again. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you.
There's not much I 